Our reading this morning is from the book of 1 Kings. We'll be reading chapter 15, verses 1 through 30. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam in the, all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and gave them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabermon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending, you, sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ijon, Dan, Abelbeth, Makkah, and all Chinneroth, with all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he lived in Terza. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Basha had been building, and with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the books of, book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, the king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, and in his sin, which he made, 
Israel to sin. Basha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed, until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord, that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the, the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Um, just want to say welcome. If you're new, welcome. Uh, if you've been with us a long time, uh, welcome. Um, our desire and our heart uh, above everything else here at Pillar is to help you see Jesus Christ. If You know, sometimes I think about the religious leaders, the Jews, the Pharisees that were around during the time of Jesus. You think about it, they walked on the same streets as Jesus, they heard his voice in public, they saw him in person, yet they still, so many of them still missed him. Okay, our heart, our desire is to help you not miss Jesus Christ. And for that, sometimes we need to humble ourselves, sometimes we need to take a look at what we believe and uh, our actions, whether they are following suit, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, walk through that together uh, as a church family. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and jump into this morning's text. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. I thank you, God. We love you, Lord. We come before you, God, and we ask that you would have mercy on us. Um, Father, we're often distracted. Uh, we often uh, idolize ourselves, God, and the desires of our heart. So, Lord, would you turn our eyes, would you turn our hearts to you, help us to see your beauty and your goodness. God, would you humble us? Lord, would you humble me? Help us to uh, love you and honor and fear you, God, instead of uh, fearing man. Father, we love you. Uh, please make your presence and your word known to each of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so welcome this morning to some more uh, obscure Old Testament narrative. Um, I'm, I doubt that 1 Kings chapter 15 is anyone's favorite story in the Bible, ever, anyone's favorite narrative in the Bible. If it is, great. You can tell me all about it later. Um, but 1 Kings 15, this really is quintessential King's narrative. It has all of the elements that are so often repeated in the book of Kings. We see that every king is introduced by the same formula. Uh, this king reigned at such and such a time and he reigned for this many years. Uh, we also see that the reign of each king is closed with the same formula. And then we see that each king is given a rating. And that is what we're gonna be focusing on this morning. Every single king is rated. Uh, you either get an A, a C, or an F. And spoiler alert, 
every single king in the northern kingdom of Israel receives an F. Okay, they do terribly. And only two receive an A. Uh, so this morning we're going to be looking at three kings. One does okay, and two are, well, they're just failures. Um, so every king gets a rating, and every king is rated against someone. There's a measure, there's a standard that is established, and today we see who that standard is. Now we all know that sometimes there are some people who are either so exceptionally good or exceptionally bad that they become the new standard of measure. Take for example in the sports world. When you set the standard, when you set the bar high, your name gets brought into the GOAT debate, who is the greatest of all time. So in basketball, who is the person which everyone else is measured against? Michael Jordan, right? And if you say LeBron James, no one is gonna take you seriously, right? People that don't know anything about basketball know that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. Uh, in baseball, Shohei Otani, no one has a skill set like he does. He's just elite in so many ways. Yet, I got to admit, uh, even though I like him, he, we can't call him the greatest of all time yet because he hasn't, he hasn't won a whole lot yet. Uh, so jury's still out on him, but maybe. In the world of fitness, because I'm a fitness nerd, um, we have Matt Frazier, five-time CrossFit champion, uh, on the women's side, Tia Claire Toomey, six-time champion. And then uh, bodybuilding also is in the fitness world. Now, let's be honest, bodybuilding is not a sport. Uh, <laughs> bodybuilding is an activity for people who want to compare unhealthy body images. But Arnold Schwarzenegger, he, for a time, has been synonymous with the sport of bodybuilding. Now, these are all examples of people who set the bar really, really high. They become the new standard of measure. Now, when we think about the opposite, who is the worst of all time? Okay, we have to look no further than American politics. Okay, American politics is just annoying. Okay, it's divisive. People get offended by it very easily. Uh, it's like, kind of like a golden calf. Don't talk about it because we don't want to offend anyone. Right? I, I am not interested in offending anyone. I'm not interested in politics. But one thing that we see in the political cycle in America is you always see like half the country saying that the current president, he is the worst of all time. And then you have the other half of the country saying, nope, the last guy, he was the worst of all time. And this happens over and over again. It's always half the country saying one guy's the worst, half the country saying the other guy's the worst. Just depends on the algorithm, your Facebook algorithm, depends on whether or not you still drink Bud Light. Um, it's annoying. Uh, so there we have some negative examples of people who set the bar really low, right? There's several to choose from. Just depends on which side you're on. In this Old Testament passage, we have our own version of the goat debate alongside of who's the worst of all time. 
right? Uh, David is the high standard. Jeroboam is the low standard. And we see how three different kings are rated uh, against the standards that they have set. And of course, whenever we're talking about who's the greatest or who's the worst, metrics, certain metrics are going to be involved. So with basketball, uh, your points per game, rebounds, defensive rating, uh, steals, all that kind of stuff. But what's the one metric that matters the most? How many times have you won? Right, championships. How, how much of a winner are you? For Old Testament kings, winning meant being completely faithful. A win for an Old Testament king was complete faithfulness. All the other stuff didn't matter. Didn't matter how big their army was, how much gold they amassed, uh, how, ma how many roads they built, how many cities they built. A win for an Old Testament king was complete faithfulness. And for those kings who are considered faithful, we see that they are given an evaluation of righteousness. They are considered to be right in the eyes of the Lord. If you look at uh, verse 5, the author of Kings says that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That was how he was evaluated at the end of his life. So complete faithfulness equals or results in a declaration of righteousness. Complete faithfulness results in a declaration of righteousness. So church, this passage, far from being some random, obscure, irrelevant Old Testament passage, has a lot to do with us. This affects us because every time we read about an Old Testament king and how they're evaluated, we should be asking ourselves, is my heart wholly true to the Lord? Have I destroyed my high places? Is my heart wholly true? And have my actions followed suit? As we reflect on these Old Testament kings, our own imperfections are brought to the surface. Church, God has a standard by which all people are measured, and that standard is righteous. How do we measure against this righteous standard? If we're honest with ourselves, it's not good. Not good at all. So many times our hearts are not wholly true to the Lord. So many times, even when we want our hearts to be wholly true to the Lord, our actions don't follow suit. We still have our idols that we're allured by. But God had a plan to provide the righteousness that his own justice demanded. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Here Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart 
from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This passage, the history of Israel's kings, points us to how God sets a righteous standard that he ultimately provides himself. And this is our main point, essentially. God has provided his righteous standard. He has provided the righteous standard that his own justice demands. Three points that will help us unpack this that arise from the text. We see one, the standard being modeled. Two, the standard failed. And three, the standard perfected. So looking more closely here at point number one. In verses 11 through 15, we see a rather positive model of righteousness. So here, this is about the reign of King Asa. In, uh, starting in verse 11, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother, because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. So here we see Asa. He's measured against the, the gold standard, David, measured against the goat. And he does pretty well, right? His heart is wholly true to the Lord. He removes cult prostitution from the land. Uh, he demotes his mother from her position of authority, which I'm sure was probably difficult for him, being that she's part of his family. Uh, yet he navigates these difficult situations. He really puts some rubber to the road when it comes to how his actions follow uh, in being faithful to the Lord. So church, I want us to see here that it's, it's not enough just to say that we believe, just to mentally, cognitively affirm something to be true. You see, true faith, real faith, always results in action. It always results in good works. True faith is not dead. A true faith is living. It always produces something like a root. A living root produces a tree, right? So our faith produces good works in our lives, okay? We want to have the right sort of understanding and relationship between faith and works, okay? Asa displays that a little bit, yet his actions were not entirely faithful, okay? He was not completely faithful to the Lord. He didn't remove the high places. So question for you guys, we see that Asa was partially faithful. Okay, he did some hard things, but he didn't remove the high places. What was it that kept him from following through completely? 
Why was he keeping some things off the table from God? I think what the text indicates for us uh, is that it was his circumstances that kept him from giving everything to the Lord, from completely following through. In verse 16, we see that Asa had to deal with war and he had to deal with politics. Okay, these things distracted him from being wholly true to the Lord in both heart and in action. But remember, for an Old Testament king, the one metric that matters, it's not how well you do politically, it's how faithful to the Lord have you been. Asa did not completely order his priorities. He did not live by faith. He was distracted by his circumstances. So looking uh, at the map of the kingdoms here, Asa ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah, that big gray area. And then there was a king, the king of Israel, the, the green territory, was making war against his land. And what the king of Israel did is he set up a fortress, a blockade in front of, or basically stopping a central road, a central artery that allowed uh, people from the northern kingdom to come down into Judah and worship at the true temple. Okay, so he stopped that flow of traffic. But then Asa, he did some political maneuvering. He hired an outside king. He hired a foreign king to distract the king of Israel. And he reallocated all the building resources to build his own uh, fortress. So it might seem like a clever piece of maneuvering in politics. But again, this is really just a display that Asa did not entirely trust God and entirely trust in his ways. So church, what is keeping you from completely following through with your actions? What are you keeping off the table from God? Do you feel like you need to cover all your bases before you prioritize God and his kingdom? Jesus exhorts us. He encourages us to seek first the kingdom of God. This is how we pursue, this is how we live in light of God's righteous standard. Okay, we don't seek the kingdom of God to earn God's righteousness. No, we seek the kingdom of God as a result of the fact that God has provided us his own righteousness. All right, here we get to our second point. The standard failed. We see two examples of failing the standard, two failures in 1 Kings chapter 15. One king that does okay, two kings that fail. So let's Look first at the northern kingdom. Okay, uh, the king Nadab. Nadab uh, was the first failure, you could say. Um, Nadab was Jeroboam's son. Jeroboam, the guy that we talked about last week, uh, he's the guy that made two golden calf idols, set up false worship in Israel. This is his son, and he only rules for two years. 
And we're told, as a summary of his life, that he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So how does he measure against the worst of all time? The worst of all time being Jeroboam? Well, we're told that he was just like him. Verse 30 says, It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. He was just like his father, walked in all of his father's sins, walked in all of his father's ways. He was just like the worst of all time. Nadab failed to meet God's standard of righteousness. And God being a perfect, just God brings the consequences of Nadab's evil upon his own head. In verse 27, we see that Baasha, uh, a political contemporary of his, conspired against Nadab and assassinated him. <clears throat> but he doesn't stop there. Uh, this person who assassinated Nadab, he eliminates Nadab's entire family line, crushes the whole family tree, cuts it down. This is the just consequence of failing to meet God's standard. This is the just consequence of failing to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to be clear here that this is not an arbitrary standard. Hey, this is not just God's preference, as if he could prefer one or the other. This is not an arbitrary standard. No, this is a standard that is rooted in the perfect goodness of God. It separates good and evil. This is a standard that is rooted in the perfect justice of God himself. So what it meant for Nadab to fail the standard of God's goodness, what it meant is that Nadab was actively pursuing what was evil. He was not morally neutral. And that's not any different from us. We are not morally neutral. There is no such thing as a morally neutral person. To our core, we are inclined towards all sorts of evil. Okay, to our core, we are inclined to pursue things that are harmful and destructive for ourselves and the people that we love. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. We are not morally neutral. But God doesn't leave us at that place. No, God has provided the righteous standard that his justice demands. So we're no different than Nadab. And the next king that we're talking about is no different than Nadab. Abijam, his reign is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Abijam was the brother of Asa. He ruled b- before Asa. Um, and we see that he did what was evil. Unlike Asa, he did not... Uh, walk in the ways of the Lord. He did not walk in the ways of his father David. 
He walked in all the sins of his father, Rehoboam. And that's all we're told. Basically that this guy's awful, so we're moving on to the next one. Hey, that's all we're told about his life. He's no different than Nadab. He pursued what was evil. Yet, unlike Nadab, he wasn't assassinated. Unlike Nadab, his throne wasn't usurped. Unlike Nadab, his family line wasn't destroyed. Yet, their actions were the same. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why is it that Abijam doesn't suffer the same fate as Nadab? Well, we're told in verses 3 through 5. And he, Nadab, walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that the Lord commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Why is Abijam, why does he receive a different fate? For David's sake. For David's sake, God had mercy on Abijam and did not eliminate his family line. Okay, and this really separates the histories of Israel and Judah. Over and over again, God shows mercy to the kingdom of Judah because of the favor that David found in the eyes of the Lord. So what's the difference between these two kings? David is the difference between these two kings. And that brings us to our last point. The standard perfected. We're told that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord in verse 5. He was, at the end of his life, he was evaluated as doing what was right in the eyes of God. In other words, he was declared righteous at the end of his life. And because of this, God gave David a lamp in Jerusalem. A lamp in Jerusalem, that's figurative for the blessing of God's presence, ensuring David a dynasty and that his son would sit on his throne. And again, time and time again, uh, Judah and its kings were bailed out. They were shown mercy. They were rescued from terrible situations because of the favor that David found in the eyes of the Lord. Because he did what was right in the eyes of God and he was evaluated as righteous. Yet, as I'm sure you all have noticed, in a very, very significant way, David did not reach the standard of God's righteousness. Verse 5 says that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except 
in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That is a very big exception. David murdered Uriah and stole his wife. Okay, David committed murder and adultery. So while David is the standard by which the kings of Judah were measured, we're left with the sense that he is not the ultimate king that God provides. We're left with the sense that someone greater is coming. We're left with the sense that there is still righteousness that is yet to be fulfilled. That the standard has yet to be perfected. This is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, quotes David's own words in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. You can look with me there on the screen. Here Paul writes, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. According to Paul, David was counted righteous. David was given the evaluation of righteous because of God's grace. Because in the fullness of time, God himself provided his own righteous standard for us. God sent his son to perfect the righteous standard that he himself had set. And this righteous standard is offered to anyone who would trust in Jesus Christ and look to him in faith. Because Jesus was the perfect son of David, fulfilling all righteousness, every single person who looks to Jesus in faith is shown mercy and everlasting favor for the sake of Christ himself. It is because Jesus did what was right in the eyes of the Lord that the lamp, the blessing of God's presence, will never, ever be taken. Are we all familiar with the story about the thief on the cross? Right, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One of the thieves mocked him, while the other thief, he repented. He asked for mercy. Okay, let's take a look at that account together in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Here Luke writes, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in 
paradise. Now, did this man, did this thief on the cross have any more time to change his life around? Did he have any more time to somehow make God give him the evaluation of righteous? Could he convince God at this point that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? No. There was not a single thing that he could do. He couldn't go to church. He couldn't tithe. He couldn't lift up his hands in worship. He couldn't feed the hungry or clothe the poor. He couldn't take communion. He couldn't be baptized. There was no altar call for this man. He was stuck, nailed to his sin. What could this man do to earn his salvation? Nothing. Church, this is every single one of us. What can we do to earn our salvation? There's nothing. We are stuck, nailed to our sin. What we can do is look to Jesus, who is next to us, nailed to that very same sin. It was for Christ's sake that this thief received salvation. It was for Christ's sake that he was saved. Because Jesus did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, because Jesus was vindicated as being righteous, this man was saved. Because Jesus did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, we are saved. Just like the thief on the cross. In Jesus Christ, God has provided his own righteous standard that his justice demands. Because God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, God looks at us and treats us as if we had never sinned nor ever been sinners. Because God has provided his own righteous standard, he looks upon us as if we have been as obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Look, I know we all know that life is hard, that there are so many difficulties in life, so many hardships, difficult circumstances, trials, storms, sicknesses, there's suffering, there's death. There's kid problems, there's health problems, there's family problems. There is only one thing we have to look to. There is only one hope that we have in the midst of all this pain and death and destruction. That single hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ the very perfection of the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us. God, we thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, we ask that you would forgive us for thinking so often that we have something to justify ourselves with. God, forgive us for looking to our own behavior, our own false righteousness, God. May we humbly submit to your Son and receive the gift of his righteousness. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. God, I ask that you would bless every person here, help them to know your love. And God, I ask that you would help us to grow in love for you and in love towards one another. Help us to be a church that supports one another, that loves one another. God, that points each other to you so that we might not miss you, God, even though we may be close to you in your proximity sometimes even though we maybe hear about you and see your actions in other people's lives. God, I pray that we would not miss you. Help us to be a family that points one another to you and loves one another well. We praise you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.